Thank you, Mr. Larry. Appreciate that so much. And we do want to say a happy Father's Day to all of you that are here today. And I guess even for those that aren't here, we hope they have a happy day. I've had a good day already. I got a tie here, uh, Father's Day. I, I don't get a tie every year. So that was good. And I got a pair of sandals. I like it. And yeah, I like that. He got a pair of socks. It says one, one sock says Bob's sock, and the other one says Bob's other sock <laughs> on it. Just so you, yeah, just so he doesn't forget. Okay. Yeah, Seth got a new house. He's, he's not a father yet. Well, that's something we're praying about and hoping for. Agonizing over, actually. <laughs> but that's to be determined in the future. <laughs> well, yeah. But we will have we have a new father back in the sound room. Not by birth yet, but in October, Jeff and Jana will be parents. And I already sent Jeff his first Happy Father's Day greeting. Uh, I said, well, I should have put pre-Happy Father's Day. But anyway, he got one. I couldn't wait. I didn't want to wait another year. So <laughs> I sent him one already. And it's a good thing to be a father. I enjoyed it. Wouldn't trade it for anything. And uh, in spite of all the trials and difficulties you go through in raising kids, and boy, don't we ever know about that. I was a trial <laughs> when I was a kid. I know that. Uh, I put my parents through their paces, and they, they sure matured and grew, I think, while I was growing up. <laughs> it was It was something else, but I sure did enjoy my childhood, and I've told my uh, an uncle that lived just up the road from me who was a farmer, and I spent, I guess, about half my life up at his house. And, of course, we had my mom came from a big family, 11 kids, and, and uh, with all of our family and the get-togethers and the reunions and then working on a farm and living out in the country. I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even though I didn't grow up as a Christian and was very, very unchurched uh, until my well, around 10 or 11, 12, somewhere along in there, uh, I wouldn't trade my growing up years for anything. I, I really had a great time growing up as a kid. and Thought I was poor, but then you grow up and you find out you really wasn't so bad off as you think you were. But we did okay, and I enjoyed it. All right, uh, Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we've been working our way through this book, and we're about to finish up. I don't know if we'll make it through today, but I'll try. Uh, these last several verses are, you know, not a great amount of detail, although you could make it so. Uh, I found an awful lot of material on the, on several of these fellows here, uh, names that are mentioned here, and the details of, of Paul's writing. I don't know that it's necessary to go into all of that other than that they're just of interest, some, some of this information. So we're going to try to hit the key highlights here and things that I think that are of import to all of us as we think about the message of Colossians and the things we've discovered concerning um, the destiny of the Colossian believers. 
what was going to be the final outcome for them you know, as, as a result of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we spent a considerable amount of time there in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and talking about the door of opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel and about the, the contents of that gospel, a, a part of it at least, being the, the uh, mystery of Christ and what all that uh, meant. And then also the walk of the Colossian believers, how they were to conduct themselves. And so as he makes his closing comments, it's a small letter to, to begin with, and it seems out of proportion somewhat that there would be so much personal information. But that was true of Paul and most all of his letters. He was a very personal person, and he mentioned people by name. And some of these things that we're going to see today, the names of these individuals, uh, are loaded with some real meaning for us. Now he talks about, in verse 7, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Now there's a good bit of information about Tychicus there. He was the one who carried the letter to Colossae, along with a letter to Philemon, and apparently the letter uh, to uh, Ephesus, or maybe even the letter to the Laodiceans, if they're two different letters. That's not to be agreed upon by anyone, I don't suppose yet. But um, he says here that he is a beloved brother. You know, that's sometimes glossed over as, you know, just we don't treat it as deeply as we ought to. For Paul to say and speak such words about a person was a strong there were strong words of endearment. Some translations so would say he was a dear brother. But I think beloved says it a little more strongly. And Paul had some very definite feelings about this man, Tychicus. Not only was he a beloved brother, but a faithful minister and a fellow servant. Or a, other places, that word would be translated a co-servant or a joint servant with Paul. And so he was very intimately involved with Paul and his ministry. And we could go back and look at Acts 20 and see where he was involved in traveling with Paul as one of his cohorts in ministry and his missionary labors. But we won't take the time to do that this morning. But he says in verse 8, I have, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that he might know your estate or know your affairs and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They, together, shall make known unto you all things which are done here. So you see it was a mutual thing. He was sent to know about the affairs of those at Colossae, and they were to transmit the message from Paul concerning the things going on with him there in Rome while he was in prison. And... Not only did he carry this message, but he included this man Onesimus in as a part of the package deal. They traveled together. 
And you might remember that Onesimus was the one whom uh, Paul apparently had led to the Lord. He had shared the gospel with him there in Rome. He was a, a prisoner who had uh, left his master. And now Paul is sending him back. And he's traveling with Tychicus. And Paul, and I think in an effort to maybe make him a part of the deal, to feel a part of the ministry there, included his name as one of the travelers and as one who was a fellow carrier of this message. And he calls him a faithful and beloved brother, just like Tychicus. Now, how long he could have been in Rome and how long Paul could have had to disciple Onesimus, I don't know. But it seems of interest to me that in such a short time, and it apparently wasn't a real long time, that he was able to call him faithful as well as a beloved brother. So it's evidently long enough that Paul was confident that he could use such terms to describe Onesimus. And, of course, the fact that he was willing to go back to his master and, as it were, face the music uh, says a lot about him right there. And so this was, you know, again, no small thing that Paul is saying here about a, a one who was really a very low, low position in society during Paul's day. He was a slave. He was simply a person who said, you know, you go do this, you go do that. And he was to beckon at his master's call and do his bidding whenever he was called upon to do it. The same as we are to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Instantly obedient. And yet for some reason, he used a term we used in the Bahamas a lot, he bucked up against it. He resisted it. And he ran away and left. And now he's going back, a changed man. With two epithets here to describe him as faithful and a beloved brother. Boy, that's some strong terms. And... You know, you think about that today as we look around us. You know, this whole section of Paul's epistle is so very intently practical. And as we look around to each one of us and we think about whom would we feel or have such feelings towards that we could call them a beloved brother. You don't really hear that in our, our lingo today, do we? We don't really talk like that. But Paul did. And to think of a fellow believer as a beloved brother was, I think, something that was to be cherished by Onesimus. And would be cherished by me if I heard those terms. I remember, and you've heard me tell this story, when I was at, uh, when I went, as I term it, I went back to church. I'd been in Sunday school and in and out of church and, you know, very little... Uh, did I ever understand, but this one time that I heard the gospel and I trusted Christ and then I was out of church and all this sort of thing, and then finally 
the Lord got a hold of my heart. I went and rededicated my life, went back to church, and began to grow as a Christian. And having taken part in church life over a period of several weeks, and I don't even know for sure how long it was. It might have been two or three months or a half a year or something. And then one of the men in the church, I remember to this day, I know right where I was, I was standing on the platform. That tells you something. I was involved in church ministry there. I was on the church platform, and one of the men there, one of the leading men in the church, called me Brother Allen. And I remember how that just struck me right here in my heart and what, how the feeling that came over me because I felt like I was finally one of them. I belonged. And I'm sure that's how Onesimus must have felt. Paul's term of endearment about this beloved brother and Tychicus. Now, Tychicus has spent a lot of time with Paul. At this point, um, uh, let's see. At this point, probably, at least I'm going to say maybe a couple of years, but not so with Onesimus. And yet both of them are termed beloved brother. Strong terms. And I'm sure was meant to be a, a real encouragement to Onesimus as he was going back to his master to face up to what he had done. And, of course, we don't have time to go to the book of Philemon and look at all that Paul said concerning Philemon and how he made this tender appeal to him to receive Onesimus back as a brother. Sure, he was his slave. But he said, receive him as, a, as you would a brother. And again, a tender appeal on the part of Paul. So Paul, though he may have some very strong language in his epistles and the things that he taught concerning uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the mystery of Christ as it applied to Gentiles and their inclusion in the gospel, and so forth, and yet on Paul's personal side, in dealing with those who were loyal to him, who were faithful workers with him, he was very drawn to them, and he was appreciative of them, as we'll see here in the next couple of verses, regarding um, the fellow Jews that labored with him. As a matter of fact, he tells them, and then in verse, uh, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salutes you. That word fellow prisoner, again, an interesting term because it literally means a prisoner of war. And there actually is another word that Paul could have used had he meant somebody in jail with me, in prison with me. But apparently here he meant, it, meant this metaphorically as a fellow prisoner in the spiritual battle with Christ. And by the way, the word Aristarchus, it means literally the best ruler. That's, that's quite a name, isn't it? The best ruler. He may have come from a, a noble family, for all we know, we don't know. But evidently, he had been in a, a, a position of prominence. And he had come to hear the gospel. He came to know the Lord. He received Christ. And now Paul is calling him my fellow prisoner. Someone evidently very intimate with Paul 
in, in, in the spiritual labors that they were undergoing. And then he includes Mark, sister's son to Barnabas, which actually means cousin, not nephew, so the authorities say. You would think here that it means nephew, but they say that that word never didn't come to mean nephew until much, much later in Greek than what it was used here, but means cousin to Barnabas. Touching whom you receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. Now, Paul didn't use a lot of open language here in a letter concerning him, but evidently he sent a verbal message with Tychicus and Onesimus concerning Mark. And so what that was, we don't have any idea. It's interesting concerning concerning him. If you go back to Acts chapter 12, it's kind of interesting to follow the pattern of Mark's association with the Apostle Paul. And as we're all well aware, you know, he traveled with Paul on his missionary journey, his first missionary journey, in fact, as long with with his fellow cousin Barnabas. And back in chapter 12 and verse 12, it says, And when he had considered the thing, he, that's Peter, that is, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So he came from a, a family of believers, and his mother was a believer. And there was a prayer meeting going on at her house over the release, uh, apparently the release, at least, of Peter. Peter was miraculously released from prison. And here he is specifically mentioned by name concerning this, this locale where they actually were meeting. Then if you look over to uh, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 12, it says there, "...the word of God grew and multiplied." And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. And then we come to chapter 13. In other words, it says when they returned, that means they returned to Antioch. That was where Paul had been based. And... And returning there, they met up with the leaders of the church. And it says in verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And so when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And so these, Paul was sent on his first missionary journey by the church, In verse 5, it says, And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. That is, John came along uh, to serve with them on this missionary journey. Now, this would have been late 40s, early 50s, when Paul made this first trip. And if you turn to um, over to chapter 15, And verse, well, actually, I didn't want to go there. I want, Yeah, that is two. 
excuse me, I skipped over in chapter 13 and verse 13 is where we find that Mark left the company of Paul and Barnabas and went back to Jerusalem. Now, I've read in a couple of commentaries where they said he went back to his mother. (laughs) Well, that's reading an awful lot into the passage. Fact is, his mother lived in Jerusalem, but we have no idea why he went back. Except that in abandoning abandoning Paul and Barnabas, it was evidently something of the nature that was very disturbing to Paul. So as we come back over then to Acts chapter 15 now, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 37, that's where we find on their next journey that Mark was invited by his cousin Barnabas to go along with him. And Paul didn't want him to go. And so in verse 38 it says, Paul thought it not good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And so evidently, Paul being upset about the fact that he had abandoned them in the midst of some labor, some work, missionary work that they were doing. Barnabas determined to take him along. And it says in verse 39, the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and they sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul, Paul chose Silas. And so they went their separate ways, and they both entered into missionary labors separately over this contention of him wanting to take uh, uh, Mark along on the trip. Again, I say, whatever it was, I don't know, other than the fact that it was abandonment at a crucial time in their missionary labors, because all it says was he didn't go with them to the work. And he left, we would say today in our vernacular, he just left them hanging and they had to go it alone. But now we find back here in Colossians chapter 4, Aristarchus, he says, salutes you and Marcus, cousin to Barnabas. And it says, if he comes to you, receive him. Welcome him. And then if you were to turn over, now this, by the way, was written in around A.D. 61. And we find him mentioned also over in the book of Philemon, which, as we said, was the letter that, that Paul had written to Philemon concerning Onesimus. And he he just mentions him by name. Nothing else mentioned in verse 24. Salute there Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. Here he calls him a fellow laborer. This also written about the same year. But then we come down to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And if you turn over there, In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'd be well aware that this was Paul's last letter to be written. 
And he wrote from a prison cell again. But it's now around the year AD 66, about five years later. And in chapter 4 and verse 10, he says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Only Luke is with me, verse 11. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And so here at this late time, he had become profitable to Paul. And he uses a little more stronger language to describe his relationship with him. And so over time, apparently, we could read into this and say that uh, Mark had changed. He had grown. He had matured. And he had dedicated himself to the ministry. And Paul felt it very profitable to have him along. Now then, he moves on. Back in Colossians chapter 4, He mentions another man here in verse 11 named Jesus, which is called Justice. Jesus was a very common, common name during that time. It's just the Greek word for Joshua. Joshua is a popular name in our day. And But what is so interesting here, he says, who are of the circumcision. They were Jews. Jews who had received the gospel and were fellow workers with Paul. And he says, These only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. That is, these are the only Jews who are my fellow workers. Now, you might remember we said Paul was in prison. He was in prison in Rome. And if you would go back and read Paul's letter to the church at Rome, you find that there were There was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles in that church. There were more than three. There were many Jews in that church, but only three were laboring with Paul in the gospel ministry. And in in comparative numbers, Paul's saying, these only, these are the only Jews that labored with me unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Could you imagine, of course, Paul being called by God to be a laborer in the gospel ministry to Gentiles? You really have to go back and transport yourself to the mindset of that day and what it meant for a Jew to associate with Gentiles. And could you imagine Paul going out on his own, striking out all by himself, which I believe, by the way, had no Jews been with him, he would have done it in obedience to the Lord. But how lonely and terrible that would have been to labor under such conditions, all by himself, amongst the Gentiles, him being a Jew. And so these these three fellow laborers of his who were Jews, those of the circumcision, Paul found to be a very great comfort to him. And it was very meaningful to him that they labored with him. And it says they were fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. I think that's very striking. He didn't say he was, they were fellow workers 
getting people saved so they could go to heaven. But they were fellow workers unto the kingdom of God. Now, it is striking in more ways than one because Jews understood the promises of God to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and through the prophets, the promise of a coming kingdom in which an anointed one, a Messiah, would come and deliver Israel, establish a kingdom with him as the head, and bring peace and righteousness to that land. In other words, there would be a settledness and a prosperity to that nation that they had never known. And now, these, having that kind of knowledge, Paul associates with this laboring unto the kingdom of God. In other words, my point is, he doesn't say it about the Gentiles who were fellow laborers. He doesn't say it about Tychicus. He doesn't say it about Epaphras or any of these other men, but only about these three Jewish believers. And so, bound up in that terminology, I think was something emphatic that Paul was stating regarding their labors and the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And so I think it was, from that aspect, a real comfort to Paul to have them laboring along with him. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you. Epaphras, being a Colossian, we talked about him back in chapter 1, verse 7, where he was a minister to them. And evidently the founder of the church there, the one who had proclaimed the gospel, uh, or uh, as it's, well, actually, as it says back in, in chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. This message which they had heard given by Epaphras. He was now in Rome, apparently had gone there to meet Paul and to share with him the troubling things that were going on in Colossae regarding the Gnostic teachings that were going on there. That's why we see so much, I think, alluding to Gnosticism, not mentioning it by name specifically, but the teachings of the Gnostics are brought out very clearly here, and Paul is providing the scriptural and biblical antidote to what Epaphras was concerned about. Tychicus and Onesimus were carrying this letter back to Colossae. Epaphras wasn't traveling with them. He was staying in Rome with Paul. For whatever reason, again, we don't know. But Paul writes to them, telling them that he is always laboring fervently for you in prayers. What an encouragement that must have been to the church at Colossae. And that laboring fervently, of course, we know that familiar word, agonizo, agonizing, struggling, like in an athletic contest, laboring in that, with that kind of intensity in prayer. 
Well, I want to tell you something. That's some real labor in prayer when you pray like that. And what was his prayer? That you may stand perfect or complete and mature in all the will of God. Now, back in chapter 1, we saw in verse 9, For we also, Paul says, in the day we heard it, that is, of their reception of the gospel, he says, we do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And that ought to tell us something about the content of Paul's prayers, the content of Epaphras' prayers, what ought to be the content of our prayers when we pray for our fellow believers. And it's for growth. It's for maturity. It's for completeness in all the will of God. And then he goes on to tell them in verse 10, what what that means to walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, and that's the full mature knowledge of God, by the way, and strengthened with all might and according to his glorious power and all patience and long suffering and joyfulness, giving thanks to the father and so forth. All of these things were the content of Paul and Epaphras' prayers that the believers at Colossae would grow in and become mature and complete in and filled with this kind of knowledge. And it behooves us, of course, to pray the same way. But not only are we to pray in the same way, we should be moving in that direction ourselves. We should be growing and maturing in the knowledge of God and in this maturity that we might be striving for this perfection, as he uses the word here, this full-blown, grown maturity. Not only should we be doing it ourselves then and praying for others in the will of God that they would arrive at the same goal. Why would you pray such a prayer? Why would we want to do that? Well, what would it mean... What would it mean if we were to arrive at the end of our life and we were still a baby Christian? We hadn't grown. We hadn't matured. And we still had our spiritual diapers on. What then? When we stand before the Lord, is he going to say then, well done, good and faithful servant? I would certainly think not. That alone, see, we've talked about this many times. That alone right there tells us that to, just to have the knowledge that I am saved and I'm on my way to heaven, that my destiny with God is sure, isn't enough. We can't sit back and be satisfied and happy with such knowledge. We need to move on. We need to continue to move ahead in growth and maturity 
And it's, of course, it's a never-ending thing. And if you want to know what would be pleasing to God and with respect to that, then all we would have to do is turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, and I believe it's verse 13. We won't take time to look there, but it says, concerning those believers there, he says, these all died in faith. That was the high esteem in which those believers, these Old Testament saints were held, was that they died in faith. They died believing. They died as having grown in a mature faith in the promises of God. And, of course, that's where we need to be. That's where God desires for us to be. That was where Paul and Epaphras desired for the Colossian believers to be when they prayed for them. He says in verse 13, I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Well, he didn't pray just for the believers at Colossae where he was the pastor, but believers in these other cities as well. And for all we know, he may have been the one that founded the churches in those cities too. Because we don't know. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Well, we know a lot about Luke, don't we? The beloved physician. Dr. Luke as some are wont to call him, traveled with Paul in his missionary journeys. You can go back to the book of Acts and you can trace the point at which Luke joined Paul. Even though he wrote the book of Acts, he wasn't with Paul on all the journeys. But there's a a we and a they and an us and a them in the book of Acts that describes for us the time at which Paul joined the uh, the, church ones who were traveling with Paul, and he entered into their labors with him in that journey. And then he says, and Demas, Demas greets you. We know about Demas. Demas was one who labored with Paul as well. But we also know that he was a defector. And he left Paul. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we've already been there and we read the passage. It says there, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. He left. He abandoned Paul. He forsook him. (coughs) And it says the reason he forsook him was that having loved this present world. Now, if I would have been reading that, if I wouldn't have looked up what the world was, what the, the word world was there, just in a normal reading of that passage, if you had asked me, well, what's the Greek word there? You know, which word for world is it? Because you know there's more than one. And I would have been very quick to say, well, I'd I'd guess it's probably the cosmos. You know, cosmos refers to the ordered arrangement of the world. It's the world's affairs. 
It's the way in which the world lives and conducts its business and carries on its activities. And I would have thought, surely that would probably be what it was, because that, you know, for Demas to forsake Paul and gone back to Thessalonica, you would have thought, well, he got caught up in the things of this world and he just went back to living a worldly life. Until you find out that it's not the word cosmos at all. It's the word eon, that word age. Having loved this present age. Now, you th- I thought, what in the world can this possibly mean then? If, if he loved this present age, would that be something similar to loving the cosmos? Well, if you look at Demas and his name, It means a governor of the people. And my contention is, and I didn't read this anywhere because I didn't see anybody that dealt with it, but it it was my, it's my own personal opinion, I should say it that way, that Demas, having been a governor of the people, because, and you know that in those days, those appellations giving to men were given with meaning and purpose, just like Aristarchus. It was a surname. That he, in other words, the word ruler was a surname given to Aristarchus describing who he was. He was the best ruler. Demas, a governor of the people, evidently holding a position of leadership in some fashion. And when you think about this age and the age to come, when you consider the present age and the rulers of this age as opposed to the age to come and the rule of Jesus Christ over the earth, it seems to me that Demas was attracted to his position as a ruler, as a governor. And he went back to that. He went back to that which this age in which we live now, he went back to that which this age provided him and he forsook that which was to be offered him in the age to come. And of course, in the age to come, as Paul tells us in Romans 18, uh, excuse me, Romans 8, 17, he tells us in 2 Timothy 2, 12 and other passages that in the age to come, we are promised a share in the rule of Jesus Christ when he comes to rule the earth. To those who have been faithful with him, to those who have been loyal to him, there is the probability of sharing in that future rule. And Demas forsook that to go back to the glories that come to man in this present age. Now, I realize I've read an awful lot into that just off of a man's name. But I think a person's name, as we've discussed, means something here. It means something everywhere in Scripture. And I think that ought to speak volumes to us of what it means to have forsaken the Lord and forsaken Paul. What will it mean for Demas when he stands before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ? And again, is he going to hear a well done? I would think not. 
Paul moves on, verse 15, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphos, and the church which is in his house. And again, we won't belabor that point. It is well known that there, it was common that churches were, there were no church buildings in those days. They just simply met in people's homes. I always like the way the Russians describe them. They call them uh, prayer houses. They don't call a church like we do a church. They call it a prayer house in order to distinguish between the place that, where they meet and what is the church. So the church, which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also of the, uh, in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And this is the passage where many think that this was the same as the, the letter to the Ephesians. Inasmuch as it, many manuscripts leave the word Ephesus out, if you look back at Ephesians chapter 1, and they think it's a circular letter. And so tying that in with this passage or this verse here in Colossians, they think that it might be the same letter. I don't know. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that thou fulfill it. <clears throat> if you were to turn to Philemon, and you don't have to turn there, but I do want you to turn to 2 Timothy. If you turn to the book of Philemon, you would find that Archippus was one of the, apparently to, the minister of the church in the house of Philemon. Because Paul in that letter gives him greeting. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 5, now Paul is writing to Timothy, of course, and he's writing his last, last words. He knows the end is near. He's about to die, and he's giving some admonishment to Timothy. In verse 1, he says, I charge thee therefore. Verse 2, he says, preach the word and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Verse 3, he says, the reason you do this is because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Verse 4, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. Verse 5, but, he says, watch thou. You, Timothy, you watch this. In all things endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. In other words, he's using the same language here that he was using over here for Archippus. He said... Fulfill completely your ministry. That is um, what God has called you to do, Timothy. To preach the gospel. To minister unto God's people in the church, in the assembly. And he's telling Archippus the same thing. Back here in Colossians 4 verse 17. He says that you fulfill that which you've received in the Lord. Complete it. Be faithful in the ministry is a way we would say it. 
and don't quit. And then finally, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Of course, in this particular letter, Paul put his own signature to the letter to validate what was written here as coming from him. And so we find as we conclude the entire epistle, Paul covered all the essential truths, but he focused specifically on the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we found that there was a reason for that. In other words, why didn't he do that when he wrote to the church at Rome? It was because there were those in Colossae, you remember, who were teaching Gnosticism, who taught that the path to God began with Jesus. But you remember we said that Jesus was considered to be down here on earth with us. He was just the beginning point. And then you had these series of gods or emanations or spirits that you had to work your way through till you finally got to God. And Jesus was just the beginning point. He just the starter. And Paul corrected all of that by saying, no, he is the head of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. He's the head of the body. And by the way, did you ever think about this? When you think about the body and us being members of the body and Jesus being the head, where is the head? Is the head not in heaven? And where's the body? The body's on earth. They're not joined together today except in a spiritual union belonging to him. But one day, when God calls forth his bride, then that body will be joined to him in the greatest marriage ceremony that will ever take place, and one that I want to be a part of. And I know you do too, choir. So when you read this letter, when you consider what Paul has to say here, and writing to this church, think very deeply and strongly about the, the exalted position of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> think about that head. The head being in heaven is what gives direction and life, animation to the body. It's what moves the body. And as we look to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who gives direction to each of the members of the body and tells it what to do. As a matter of fact, not only does he tell it what to do, he places the members in the body in their respective positions to do whatever it is that he's gifted you to do or called you to do. And so... Paul's admonition that Jesus Christ is the head of the body tells us who we look to. And anything that detracts from him is going to lead us astray and out of that will of God that Paul spoke of and Epaphras spoke of. 
And so we want to be very sure and very clear about who is Lord of our life. And when we call him Lord, and we need to walk and act in accordance with that and believe what we say. I know I'm just as prone as anybody to think, you know, we start using words and then all of a sudden the, the, the depth and complexity and the uh, power of their meaning begins to lose its force and we begin to use them kind of lightly. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's celebrate him today as Lord of our lives. And that is fathers. We would be devoted to doing that in our families. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you in heaven for the message that you have left us through the hand of the Apostle Paul and the ministry of your spirit and those who serve to record the words and preserve them and to bring them to us today so that we have them in a book that we can have confidence in and trust in and believe and to know that we have a message from heaven and that this message is the one you desire us to have. Lord, help us to do that so that we look forward with faithfulness, with great desire for the things to come, so that we wouldn't grow faint in the journey and weary, that we would not be prone to giving in to the temptations of this present age and this cosmos and the things which will detract us and lead us astray. We have plenty of examples in the Bible of those who were led astray, and we have plenty of examples of those who were faithful. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on those who were faithful, who saw the end, who never quit in spite of the trials and the temptations, the persecution, and the treatment they received at the hands of sinners and those wicked men who desire to seek their own way and lead us into the paths that would destroy us and remove us from any blessing you might have for us. Direct us now today, we pray, as we sing this song, a hymn of invitation. And Lord, if there's anything here that you have to deal with us, may you prevail upon hearts today and that we'd have that settled that we know Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.